You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. How many of you, when you were a kid, heard that very phrase? Remember, sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Words will never hurt me. And your parents said that to you, right? After you came back from the playground or playing outside or you were at school and some kids said something mean to you, it was probably your brother or sister first, and your parents said that to you. And that was supposed to what? Encourage you. But it didn't encourage you, did it? Because the reality is if you've ever broken a bone, and I have, it was funny, until I was 12 years old, I hadn't broken any bones, and then I averaged one year until I was 23. So I did my fair share of bone breaking. And I tell you, every single one of those bones is healed. Now, some of them still have pain involved to them. But I tell you, there are words and phrases and comments and jokes from my youth that to this day still hurt. And the bones have long since healed, but the words have not. Am I right? And so it's a funny phrase, and I don't know why. It don't, please don't say it to your kids. It rhymes, but it doesn't mean much. And what we want to do is spend a series looking at our words, the power of our words, the impact of our words, and what does the Bible have to say about our words themselves. So here's my kind of opening question for you to kind of think about. Have you ever felt pinned down, pinned down by the enemy? Have you ever felt pinned down by the enemy? Here's what I mean by this. So for me, I remember being a young man, and um, when I was, I've told this story before, but it's been a few years, but when I was around 12, 13 years old, I broke my pelvic bone. I did this dancing at a school dance in eighth grade. I was showing off and doing splits. I had been doing them for a couple weeks. I don't know. I'd figured out how to do them. Thought I was the coolest kid in town. I was dancing, well, in my mind, like MC Hammer, you know, whatever. I probably didn't look at all like that. But I actually have a picture of the dance before I broke my hip and I was dancing. And uh, so like at the eighth grade dance, all the kids would make a circle and we'd be showing off. And one of my friends and I, we were dancing to the song, It Takes Two. And he kind of knelt down and I leapfrogged over him and landed in a split. And I knew instantly something was different this time. I heard a loud popping sound, and I slammed into the ground with my underside, and uh, immediately my thought was, man, I just pulled my groin. I didn't know what that meant. My dad had said that once because he had pulled his hamstring, and so I thought a groin, a hamstring, I don't know what it is. That must be what I did. It turns out my hamstring snapped my pelvic bone in two right on the growth plate, which is why I'm so short to this day. (laughs) It's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Because of that, I went from literally two months later, I was voted by my classmates as the most athletic kid in the eighth grade. I've got my yearbook to celebrate my glory days. They ended in eighth grade. Because after that, I could no longer play baseball. I could no longer play basketball, although I wasn't great before that. I could no longer play football. I could no longer run sprints and track. I was relegated to distance running as a five foot eight guy. That's not going to go well for you. But that was all I had left. That was all my body could handle after that moment. I spent months and months and months on rehab and trying to rebuild back up, but I could never get back because the pain was always, and still to this day, so intense. So I say this, excuse me, I say this because what happened as a byproduct is nine months later, my dad switched jobs and we moved schools as a freshman in high school. And what God was doing in that moment was stripping my identity away from me. My identity, this way I was answering this question that every man has is, do I have what it takes? Am I good enough in the world? The way I was answering that question was, well, the answer must be yes, because I can keep up with the other guys around me athletically. 
And God was stripping that away from me. And what he was going to do, and I didn't know this, it's hindsight now, is he was going to rest my identity in who he is and who I am in him. But in eighth grade, you don't understand these things. You don't understand what God is going to do. So when I was a freshman in high school and I no longer had sports as my identity, I was a struggling little boy. You could talk to my parents about this. I mean, they, they thought of trying everything under the sun. They could see that I was going through a hard season, but they had no idea what to do with me. This was profound because when I got to this new school, I could no longer hang out with the athletic kids. I wasn't in sports. They didn't really want anything to do with me. And I felt it. I don't even know that it was their fault. It was my fault. I wouldn't engage. But what happened as a byproduct was I started hanging out with my church youth group, which I had never done before that. And I started to find a community of people, maybe like some of your teens are struggling, I started to find a community of people in my church who really cared about me. But one night, and I'll never forget it, we were in the back of the church van coming back from an event, and I don't remember the conversation or how it happened, but these kids that I'd been in church with my whole life but never really hung out with, I was starting to hang out with, starting to feel like a place, we started to have a deep and vulnerable conversation. And one of the girls in front of me, she turned around and she said something to me. She said, Matt, sometimes Sometimes your arrogance is so overwhelming, it makes us not want to hang around you. M maybe she was right. Maybe that was her perception, another's perception of me. But I'll tell you, inside, it wasn't arrogance, it was insecurity. I was a young man desperately trying to find his place. And I'm sure I said some things or did some things that rubbed people the wrong way, just like I have as a church leader at times. But I gotta tell you, it was all, I can guarantee you, it was not coming from a place of confidence. It was coming from a place of lack of confidence. And it was as if Satan himself were using her to speak to me. Because what happened next was this conversation erupted with the group where all of a sudden I'm the center of attention, but not in a good way, as people start to give me, and I asked for it, I said, so give me an example, and people start giving example after example after example after example of in their lives, their perception of something I did that was arrogant. I started to feel very crushed and disassociated from the group, the only place that I had found community. By God's grace, one of the leaders driving the van overheard the conversation. He actually, uh, I remember, he slowed the car down, flipped the lights on. It was kind of late in the evening, so it was dark out. Flipped the lights on. I can't remember if he pulled over. I just remember it was a profound moment because he got everybody's attention. And he basically told everybody to shut up. And he said, you guys are being completely unfair. Matt's a good young man. He just came to my defense. He started saying all these things. And it was like a glimmer of hope. It was as if somebody had provided a small shield to defend me. <clears throat> it's my sons, all right? I'm sticking to that story, too. It may or may not fit my hand on the back. I'm just saying. It was as if somebody had provided a shield to protect me, to guard me from these arrows that were flying at me. My heart in that season was in a very uh, sensitive place. I was discovering this thing called the community of the church. And what I needed more than ever was, yes, I needed people to speak the truth to me, but I needed them to speak the truth to me in what? Love. How many times have you found yourself in a community of people where you desperately needed love and acceptance? Did you need the truth? Of course, we all do. We cannot avoid the truth. But instead, what you found were these flaming arrows, and what you felt was completely pinned down, completely pinned down by the enemy. Well, this kind of illustration reminded me of a story I recently read in a book called Wild at Heart. Men, I highly recommend you read this book, and if you've already read it, read it again. It'll do you some good. 
But in it, he tells a story. So a guy named Stephen Ambrose wrote a book called Citizen Soldiers. And he writes about what happened after the, the, we stormed the beaches at Normandy. So you may realize we won the beach at Normandy. However, we lost a lot of lives. There were a ton of casualties. And there was more war to be fought. And so there was kind of this mixed feeling among the soldiers. You know, there's this pride in the fact that we won. But there's this fear and terrified kind of thought of because they saw the death, the suffering, the pain that happened as a byproduct. And on June 7, 1994, uh, this is how Stephen Ambrose tells the story. Brigadier General Norman Cota, the assistant division commander of the 29th, came on a group of infantry pinned down by some Germans in a farmhouse. He asked the captain in command why his men were making no effort to take the building. Sir, the Germans are in there shooting at us, the captain replied. Well, I'll tell you what, Captain, said Coda, unbuckling two grenades from his jacket. You and your men start shooting at them. I'll take a squad of men, and you and your men watch carefully. I'll show you how to take a house with Germans in it. Coda led his squad around a hedge to get as close as possible to the house. Suddenly, he gave a whoop and raced forward, the squad following, yelling like wild men. As they tossed grenades into the windows, <coughs> Kata and another man kicked in the front door, tossed a couple of grenades inside, and waited for the explosions, then dashed into the house. The surviving Germans inside were streaming out the back door, running for their lives. Kata returned to the captain, and he said, You've now seen how to take a house, said the general, still out of breath. Do you understand? Do you know how to do it now? Yes, sir, they replied. Every guy hears that story like, yeah! But this is how we feel, right? We have this defeat on the beaches. Came through the cross of Christ. For those of us who've been doing this thing called faith for any length of time, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our identity is in Christ. However, it doesn't always feel like that when the enemy has us pinned down, right? Now, we've been told by Jesus, as he told Peter, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against his people, his church. Now, the gates are set up not to attack. Gates are set up to what? Defend, protect. And Jesus says the gates of Hades will not prevail. And yet, many of us don't attack the gates of Hades. Instead, we stay pinned down by the enemy, desperately trying to protect ourselves from the flaming arrows that he would shoot at us. Consequently, he's winning the battle because we're on the defensive instead of on the offensive. But I have a theory, just like Brigadier General, I have a theory that many of us don't know how to take a house. Many of us don't know what to do with these attacks that come at us. So we do what almost every person does. We become Saul's, like in the Old Testament. And when we feel threatened, when we feel insecure, when we feel our little kingdom is, is in trouble, we grab a spear and we chuck it. So what does it mean to attack the enemy and not somebody who is supposed to be on your team? Let's take a look for a quick moment. We're not really in the book of Ephesians anymore, but ooh, what a great place to start. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. A final word, a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor 
so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. I'm going to read that again. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. But against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Against mighty powers in the dark world. Against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Do you realize all the different words he's using to help you understand? These are unseen, spiritual, dark forces. Verse 16, in addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. You need to go out to Walmart or Target today (laughs) and buy yourselves one of these puppies. So what is Paul trying to tell us? We are in a battlefield. We live in the middle of a battle. And if we do not realize that, then when somebody uses a word, a phrase, a joke, a comment, a sarcasm, and perhaps they don't mean for it to hurt as profoundly as they do, and yet it does, we will (laughs) retreat. We will defend ourselves, and then we will choose, are we going to attack back? Or are we going to know what to do with those arrows when they come at us? Now, the worst thing that any of us can do, the worst thing that any of us could do is not attack back. The worst thing that any of us can do is not acknowledge that it hurt in the first place. Because you start there. This is Jesus hanging on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is Jesus on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is us studying our Savior and realizing that in his most vulnerable moment, he felt completely left behind, betrayed, stabbed in the back by those he came to save. It's recognizing first that it hurts, and then recognizing that the person who hurt you didn't do it on their own. Just recently, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and he said something profound. When I went to tell my wife, she's like, why is that so profound to you? And sometimes I don't know why. It's just for this situation, I'd never looked at it from this angle. So I know, I know that the enemy attacks me. I know that the enemy has used many people to kind of do those attacks. But what I've never really paid attention to is just how precise those attacks are. There are things that people have said about me. There are situations and temptations I've been put in. They're just not tempting to me. I was leaving Lowe's last night in a hurry, and I walk out those front doors before I get out the back doors, and there's a lady's purse that's opened up and sitting in a cart, and there's nobody around. It's not even a temptation to me. I just turned around and said, hey, somebody left their purse here. And everybody's like, oh, thank you for turning in the purse. I'm like, wasn't that what everybody would do? It's not, that's not a temptation for me. There are plenty of other things that are temptations for me. But it's amazing when those temptations come, especially through someone's words, hitting and hurting in a very precise way, how much they hurt. They are so precise. It's as if the evil one had inspired them in just the right way to hurt me. And my friend said to me, Matt, have you ever noticed, or maybe just think about, The next time you're talking to someone and you feel tempted to say something, to be careful what you say. Because you might in that moment actually be taking part in Satan's schemes to cause deeper hurt and pain and wound in this person. You might actually be joining him in shooting the fiery arrow. Now, is it him doing it or is it you? And the answer is probably a little bit of yes. Do I believe that Christians can be tempted by Satan? Of course I do. I read Ephesians chapter 6. 
The reality, though, is, the reality, though, is if we are not careful, husbands to your wives, wives to your husbands, parents to your children, to your coworkers, you can actually take part in the enemy's plan to destroy another person. A little scary, isn't it? And what happens when we get attacked enough times? We don't start to use our shields to defend against the enemy. We start to use our shields to defend against each other. You ever meet people like this? They constantly have this wall up that you can't get to know them, right? I mean, they say, I want to be your friend. I want to hang out. I want to get to know you. But they always have this wall up, this protection up. I mean, I hear this all the time from husbands and wives, and one of them saying, why won't you just let me in? I see this all the time with parents and children, especially when they have children who've come from hard places, and they have these deep, profound wounds, and so they put up this guard, and they won't let anyone in. And the more we don't let others in, the more we can't be vulnerable. The more we can't be vulnerable, the more we can't love and accept and encourage and build up each other. And so the question for all of us is, what are we doing to help tear down the wall? so that the shield can be used to defend against the enemy and not against each other. In the book Wild at Heart, John Eldridge says this, on and on it goes. The wound is too well aimed and far too consistent to be accidental. It was an attempt to take you out, to cripple or destroy your strength and get you out of the action. The wounds we've taken were leveled against us with stunning accuracy. Hopefully you're getting the picture. Do you know why there's been such an assault? The enemy fears you. You are dangerous big time. If you ever really got your heart back, lived from it with courage, you would be a huge problem to him. You would do a lot of damage on the side of good. Remember how valiant and effective God has been in the history of the world you are a stem of that victorious stock. So are we going to use our shield to keep us from others or to protect us from the enemy? I know this. I've learned this about myself, so I'm, I'm guessing it's true about you because I see it in pastoral conversations all the time. When you live from your wound, when you live from your wound, you tend to hurt people and perpetuate the abuse. When you live from your wound, you tend to hurt people and perpetuate the abuse. And here's what I mean by that. When this thing that has happened to you, maybe at some point in your youth, that you're still using to define you yet today, that way, you know exactly what it is. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to name yours. But that thing that when somebody says it, when something happens, it goes right to the core of who you are. It goes back to something you did that is a profound failure of yours and your past. Or it goes back to something somebody said about you, a name maybe that your, your parent or somebody said over you at one point. That thing, and when it comes back up again, it crushes you. And then when you live from that place, when that place isn't healed, it's not surrendered to Jesus Christ, and you allow him to come in and heal it, then what happens is you live from it. And then what happens as a byproduct is sometimes we get nasty tongues. We start to attack and lash out and hurt others. And we feel like this is a way to defend ourselves. If I can hurt you before you can hurt me. You ever meet somebody like this? It's so easy to see it in everybody else, isn't it? It's so easy to see in other people's lives. And you think, wow. 
Psalms 10:11 in the message version I just like this version better it says this The mouth of a good person is a deep life-giving well but the mouth of the wicked is a dark cave of abuse so what the Proverbs are trying to do, in case you don't know this, the Proverbs is just a smattering of sayings created by Solomon. He searched the world, he studied God's creation, and he has all these sayings, and they all have these different pieces of wisdom for us. But what he's trying to get to here is simply this. A good person brings out of them good things to give to other people. Are your words encouraging and challenging and building up? Can other people find protection behind your shield? Or is your shield, perhaps like Captain America, used to throw at other people to hurt them? You ever notice how he uses the shield in two different ways? And we often do the same thing. Hence why the mouth of the wicked is a dark cave of abuse. It's amazing how our mouths can accomplish two different things. Really? Right? It's amazing how our mouths can both build up and tear down and sometimes in the same conversation. How many of you appreciate sarcasm? Come on, let's be honest. How many of you appreciate sarcasm? Did you know that the word sarcasm actually comes from a Latin word that comes from a Greek word, which means to tear the flesh apart? You're like, oh, well, that doesn't sound so appealing, does it? <laughs> and think about it. What is sarcasm? And I use sarcasm way too often. Sarcasm is our way of telling a, what we perceive to be a truth about somebody in a way that we perceive to be funny, but it's usually funny at that person's expense, right? So we're publicly, whether just in front of us or in front of others, teasing someone else. And we always say to that, we're teasing them, but the teasing, really, what to do? It separates the flesh. That's what it means, literally, to break down the word sarcasm, to separate someone's flesh. You might even argue it separates their soul. I'm not saying you shouldn't use sarcasm because I still think it's biblical, but I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Proverbs 10.21 in the New King James says this, The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of wisdom. So what I find fascinating about this little proverb is the fact that it's not a perfect one-to-one -one correlation. So normally, when you get a proverb like this, a piece of wisdom like this, there's some sort of comparison between the two. And there is here, but it's fascinating. So break it down what he's saying. Those who are righteous, those who are filled with the Spirit of God, they use their words to build up, to feed, to encourage. However, a fool will die. Why? Because he doesn't have any wisdom. But if you look at it, what he's saying here is the righteous should speak and should speak more and they should speak life into people. The fool should probably do what? Shut up. <laughs> but he doesn't say that. He doesn't say the righteous should speak and feed and encourage and build up and the fool should keep his mouth shut. No, he says the righteous feed others and bring life, but the fool dies because he doesn't have wisdom. So then what's the takeaway? Well, to me, I think the takeaway, the obvious takeaway is what we need is more people speaking goodness. Because there's only two kinds of people here, according to this verse. Those who have righteousness to give away, to encourage, and to build up, and to feed the masses, to be able to encourage and build up, or people who are going to die because they need it. But what happens if the righteous never speak up? 
What happens if the righteous don't become a safe place to protect others, but instead use their words to hurt and attack others? What happens then? Well, then people die because they desperately need these words. But the righteous are maybe too busy, and I'm going to go beyond the verse now, but maybe the righteous are just too busy protecting themselves to become a safe place to protect others. In the van that night, if that youth leader hadn't made such a profound uh, example to step up and to shut down what was happening, I could tell you my heart was crushed. I don't know what would have happened. I don't know if I would have stayed connected in that youth group. I mean, I was crushed. He gave me a glimmer of hope in a dark night. God did some things. He used their comments still to help grow me and challenge me. But I tell you, it was hard and it was painful. And I might have been tempted in that very sensitive season to give up and walk away. And if I had, I don't know that I'd be standing here today. Are your words a safe place for others to meet Christ? Or are you judgmental, condescending, sarcastic, constantly putting down And if so, is it your own insecurities? Have you not yet rested yourself on who Christ claims that you are? Are you still living out of your wound? Because if that's the case, then what would it take to become a person of wisdom? James chapter 3 verse 7 says this. People can tame all kinds of animals. Birds, reptiles, and fish. Notice he doesn't say children. But no one can tame the tongue. November 4th. No one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. Think about that for a minute. That same tongue that you used 10 minutes ago, 20 minutes ago, 30 minutes ago, to sing praises to God. The same tongue that sung about his glory, his power, his majesty, his righteousness. That same tongue is the very tongue that you may leave here today and look at your kids and say something terrible that's going to create a wound for the rest of their life. It's the same tongue that you may look at your spouse and in a moment of frustration later this week say something that goes way back to that profound wound that she or he has been carrying for a long time and hurt and pierced and leave them wondering if you are a safe place for them to experience the love of God. That same tongue that reads scripture, prays, and says, in Jesus' name, amen, may be the very tongue that you use to lash out at somebody else at work and not just speak the truth in love, but to criticize and to mock and to put down. Leaving them wondering, what really is a Christian? Same tongue. You only get one. Which is why James says, this tongue is so profoundly powerful. If a man or a woman can tame their tongue, they can control their whole body. He goes on and gives many illustrations of this. It's like a rudder controls a ship. You know, a big ship, tiny rudder. It's because that one rudder, if it turns to the left, turns to the right, it dictates where the ship goes. And James says, your tongue is the exact same way. If your tongue is tamed, you can control your whole body. Why? Because it's the hardest muscle to control. It's like a spark. 
When I was in Colorado, we had the second worst fire in Colorado history. I don't know if it's been worse since then. But when I lived out there, there was one that just destroyed acres and acres and acres and acres and acres of land. And you know, they always track it back to not many, 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 many circumstances, but to one campfire, one cigarette thrown out the window. There's always one little thing that catches on and then burns and destroys tons of lives and land and property and all kinds of stuff. And your tongue, James says, does the exact same thing. In fact, your words, your words have the power of life or death. Every time you speak, you have the power of life or death. You have the ability to provide a safe place for others. Or you have the ability to tack and kill and steal and destroy. To their face, behind their back, it makes no difference. Your words have meaning. Proverbs 18, 21, I, again, I liked the amplified version. I just grabbed a bunch of versions. The ones I thought I just sounded the best made it, made it make the most sense. It says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it and indulge it will eat its fruit and bear the consequences of their words. In other words, what Proverbs is trying to say is, you're going to do one or the other. You're going to give death, you're going to give life. And whichever one you choose to give, you're going to reap the benefits. So if you use your words to constantly tear down, critique, uh, uh, criticize, judge, then what you're going to find is you're going to find you bear the fruit of that. Just a quick question. So not everybody in here has an overly critical spirit. We all struggle with our tongue. James acknowledges that. But not all of us have an overly critical spirit. But some of us do. You will know it's probably you, probably you, if people don't want to be around you. If you're the kind of person who constantly finds yourself saying in those vulnerable moments to your spouse or to yourself when you're looking in the mirror, when you're praying and talking to God, why do people not want to be around me? Maybe, just maybe, there might be other reasons. You know, you might need to put on some deodorant or brush your teeth. I don't know. But maybe it's because you use your words so often to hurt or to judge or to criticize that you leave other people feeling unsafe in your presence. Did you know that if people use their words to constantly criticize others behind their back and they do it to you, that doesn't make them feel secure in you? I don't know if you think this. See, sometimes we think, well, if, I, if I, I, you know, I'm making myself feel better, I'm trying to build this bond, I'm putting down so-and-so or this kind of person or, you know, patriots or whatever it is because I want this person to like me and to trust me. I'll catch up to some of you in a minute. And um, you just think you're just having a conversation, but what you're really doing is creating insecurity because they're seeing you use yourself, your relationship, to hurt and attack others, and it leaves them with this thought in the back of their head, am I safe? When I'm not around, what are they doing with their tongue about me? Are they building up? Are they giving life? Are they tearing down? Now you have a choice to make in every conversation. And throughout this series, I just want to give a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more of wisdom. But one of the things I want you to think about today is to remember this principle. You don't have to speak just because you want to. I want you to say that with me. I don't have to speak just because I want to. One more time, ready? I don't have to speak just because I want to. Oh, I wish those words were true. No, I'm just kidding. 
man, that is so hard for me. I spent 41 years learning, and I'm still trying to learn this principle. But it might just be in the moment when you feel the most impassioned, the most motivated to speak. It might, it might just be the enemy inspiring you to say something hurtful. One of the ways you'll know is because if it's from God for you to speak, you'll feel the conviction. A lot of times you'll have a sermon or a song or a Bible verse attached to it. And you'll know in your heart, my desire is to build this person up, not to tear them down. You'll know it in your heart. But if in the moment you feel your heart racing, your blood pressure is going up, you feel your face turning red, these are all physical signs that what you're about to say may not be full of the grace God intended, or it may not be full of the truth God intended. So you'll know it's from God because I don't have to get angry and yell and scream. If it's from God, I could just calmly say it. I could passionately say it, but I don't have to get red-faced. I don't have to get angry because the truth takes care of itself. Jesus says the truth will do what? Set you free. So I don't have to beat you up with the truth. I don't have to attack you with the truth. The truth is something that is actually there to protect you. The truth is actually there to guard you, to guide you, to assist you. So I don't have to say it red-faced and angry and yelling and screaming. I just have to share it in a way that builds you up rather than tear you down. There is a huge difference, church. There's a huge difference between my opinion and the truth. My opinion and the truth. My opinion is pretty much worthless unless it's grounded in the truth. My opinion about the truth is kind of irrelevant. We had a very brief conversation about politics backstage right before I kind of came out to prepare my thoughts. There are a lot of things going on in the political world today. For the most part, America is divided into two camps. You might argue three of the truth. There's probably five or seven, but there's two primary camps. And regardless of which side you're on, there are people in our church who either come every Sunday or visit every Sunday, and they land at both camps. And if we're not careful, we will lob a grenade at them and judge them. And the reality is there's a little bit of truth on, on more than one side. And you can get mad at me for that, but I care more about people than I do about politics. People mean more to me than those things do. Yes, I want to fight to stop racism in our country. And yes, I want to fight to protect police officers as well. I want both. And I'm willing to fight for both. But I'm not willing to get into a conversation where I'm going to hurt you to have that. Because it's not honoring to Christ. How will I use my words to give life rather than death? Parents, I just want to quickly say this. There are studies out there, and I heard that there are new studies out there that changed the original data I heard, and so I'm not sure what the actual number is, but I can make the point this way. The old data said that for every negative word you use, you had to use five positive ones to overcome it, psychologically with somebody. So if you criticize, if you critique, if you put down, you had to say five positive things. And this can't be like, okay, fine, I blew it, so um, I like your shoes, I like your hair, you know, your outfit looks nice today, your breath didn't stink, and um, dinner was nice. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, we're good? No, it doesn't work like that. The point is, if you used one really hard, hurtful thing, then you had to go really intentionally find five things that would build up. Now, that was adult to adult, that study came out. And at that time, the data showed that for adult to a child, a parent to a child, it was more like 15 to 1. 
Someone told me that newer studies have come out, and maybe it's because of where we are as a culture and there's so much woundedness and insecurity, I don't know, but the number even for adults, positive to negative, has gone up more like 10 to 1 or 15 to 1, and the child ratio, parent-to-child ratio, is more like 30 to 1. Well, who has time to come up with 30 to 1 conversations with your kids? You know what would make it a lot easier? Eliminate the one. And then everything you say is going to be positive and beneficial and good for the building up of others. Man, that ought to be in the Bible somewhere. It is, in case you, weren't, you didn't get that. Maybe you don't, you know, to Timothy. What if your children didn't have to become adults who are constantly protecting themselves because of the wounds instilled on them, perhaps by their parents? Who, if you were to sit down and interview your parents, you were to sit down and interview your grandparents and their parents and to keep going back, you'd find they never had the intention of creating the wound. But maybe in a moment when they were tired or hurt or angry or frustrated, they just let it fly and they were just speaking the truth, but there was no love in it. And no one ever came back around and built back up and encouraged or even said, I'm sorry. If you really want to change your life, learn to control your tongue. In fact, James seems to say, James chapter 3, verse, tw- verse 2, Indeed, we all make many mistakes. For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. Okay, I want you to unpack that for a second. If you have an eating problem and you can't seem to just get healthy, if you have a pornography, pornography problem and you can't, just can't seem to stop looking, if you have an alcohol problem and you just can't seem to stop drinking, if you have an adultery problem, and you just keep flirting. If you have a spending problem, and you just keep buying stuff you don't need with money you don't have. If you have a cussing problem, and you keep using words that you know aren't good and keep getting you in trouble. The list could go on and on and on, but according to James, you wanna fix all those problems? Step one, control your tongue. How? How is there a correlation between my tongue and all these things? Because at the end of the day, the issue here is self-control. And the hardest thing to control is your tongue. It's the hardest one. But if you figure this one out, if you start turning your attention towards speaking life instead of death, if you start using your tongue and thinking, I'm going to be a well of living water instead of a cave of abuse, if you start using your tongue and saying, I'm going to build up, not tear down, if you start doing that, you may be surprised at how quickly all those other things become under control. And my theory is because deep, deep, deep below the tongue issue is a heart issue that you've not rested in Christ. You're still using your shield to attack and defend against humans instead of using it to defend against your enemy. And until you find your rest in Christ, your identity will be in what you perceive everybody else to think of you. And then your tongue can feel free to cut and to tear down and to destroy because ultimately you're insecure about who you are 
in him. And I don't want that for you. And you don't want that for you either. Recently had a dad from our church tell me after my uh, last sermon two weeks ago on the family series, the passage about not aggravating children impacted so deeply. I've had many dads tell me that actually. And the reason why is because so many dads have used their tongues to hurt their children, to scare them, intimidate them, motivate them. I think you can only see one of those. (laughs) But what the tongue really did was bring death instead of life. Uh, Here's how I want to end this message. We're going to go into a communion time. This is the perfect opportunity Just communion service, hang on, I'll give you a chance. Just sit for a second. This is the perfect opportunity for you to decide today to be different. What I'm going to ask you to do is as you go into your communion time today, I want you to listen to what the Spirit has to say to you. Listen to what the Father has to say to you. And just say, God, would you reveal to me all those ways that um, I have used my tongue to tear down rather than build up? I want you to seek the Lord in this time, okay? Communion is a remembrance of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. So use this time to pursue him and say, God, is there anybody in my life I need to humble myself and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I hurt you in this way. I'm sorry that I said this. I'm sorry that I did this. And then pray for strength. God, help me, please, because I don't want to do this. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. They may not forgive me. They may not receive it. They may even cut me back. But God, would you come and be my shield, my shield of faith? God, would you come and protect me in this conversation? And then you're gonna take rest behind the shield of faith, trusting that God is your warrior. God will fight for you. God has your back. And when you believe that, you have the strength you need to do what you need to do. If God reveals to you somewhere that you have used your words to hurt, to cut, to bring death instead of life, what you're going to do this week is intentionally, intentionally seek ways to build up. You're going to go out of your way. And every time the enemy brings you an arrow to shoot at them and go, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, you're just going to take it, stick it back inside, say, that's not the purpose of this arrow. This arrow is for something else. I'm going to put that back. Instead, I'm going to look for something, anything that I can come up with that's going to build them up and encourage them. And I will tell you this, you will watch the people in your life come alive in your presence. I'll close with this. I think I've used this before. I remember when we were in a hard place personally a year or so ago. And I was standing in my family room. I was kind of having my own little pity party. My kids were in bed. I was talking to my wife. She'd been hearing this pity party for quite some time. And I remember her looking at me and she said, Matt, I see something in you that you don't see. At this point in my life, I was feeling like I had failed in 18 different ways. And my wife looked at me, she said, I see something you, something great that you don't see. I saw it the day I met you. The reason I married you is because I saw it. And she went on to say a number of other things that I'll save. But in that moment, I was in such a delicate place. She had this ability to either destroy me or to save me. By God's grace, she took the wiser path. It didn't fix everything that day, but a little seed was planted in my heart that somebody who knows me better than anybody, somebody who could see past all the actions and words and things I've ever done, somebody who knows me the best, sees something great in me. And if they could see it, then maybe I can see it too. That is the power of words. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, I'm just going to ask right now. We're going to have a few minutes to just seek you. God, would you come and speak into our hearts? God, I pray right now for those of us who carry profound wounds from things others have said about us and spoken into our lives. God, I want to pray right now that you would use this message and this series to reveal to us your view of us. That you are God and you are good and you are not there waiting to crush us and destroy us with whatever truths it is you see about us. But instead, you long for those truths to set us free, to build us up, to empower us, to storm the gates of hell. So God, I pray for this room. I pray, God, that whatever wounds we carry, would we find them healed in Christ. God, teach us to be a people who use our words to build up rather than tear down. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a few minutes just to be with Jesus right now.